Amen. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open it right to the middle, more or less. We'll be in uh, the book of Psalms for the next five weeks. Uh, We've done this, uh, I don't know, maybe three years in a row now. Spend some time in the summer or near the uh, end of the summer in some of the Psalms. The Psalms are kind of the hymn book, if you will, of Scripture. They are the curated songs and poems of praise to God from among His people in the Old Testament. Uh, In the book of Psalms, we have 150 of these uh, collected songs and poems, songs of praise and lament and thanksgiving and uh, hymns to God, and it's good for us to spend time uh, in them together as a church. And so over the next five weeks, we are going to spend uh, uh, time in the last five of the Psalms, 146 through 150. We'll do them in order. Uh, as they appear to us, 146, 47, 48, 49, 50. So you'll know where we'll be over the next five weeks. These last five psalms are interesting because they are, they are all songs of praise to God. They all start and end exactly the same way. You'll see it in uh, just a moment when we read Psalm 146 here in a minute. And you'll also see it every single week in every single psalm that we cover. These are songs of praise to the God, every one of them beginning and ending with the phrase, Hallelujah, or praise the Lord. I'm very much looking forward to this series. Uh, In the Psalms, you'll be hearing uh, not just from me, but from two other brothers over the course of the next five weeks, uh, who you you have heard before. Ken Steffen will fill pulpit for us. He'll preach Psalm 148, and uh, Aaron Holitz will preach for us Psalm 149 in due weeks. And so we'll be looking forward to that and sharing in uh, the gifts that God has given to our church and other men who can faithfully handle his word, open it to us, and encourage us by it. As we come to these songs of praise, I've been thinking a little bit about how to, how to introduce this series and even how to introduce Psalm 146 specifically. And I was reminded just in the last few days that uh, football season is starting soon. And some of you are excited about that. Some of you don't care. Some of you uh, are more excited about the NFL season starting than you are college football. And some of you only care about college football and how well Alabama or Auburn is doing. And I'll let you fight that out in the foyer on your own. Roll Tide, War Eagle, I'll just make everybody happy this morning. But football season's coming soon, and it doesn't take much for us in America to get excited about football season. I don't care too much about college football, but I do love uh, or enjoy watching uh, NFL football, professional football, particularly the best team in all the land, the San Francisco 49ers. You can groan, you're still wrong. The crazy thing about football season is when it's coming is to see how excited people get about it on social media and in conversations at work around the water cooler or as you're getting ready to go to school, people start wearing their jerseys and they're talking about not just the season ahead, but they're talking about stuff that's going on with their teams right now. It's insane to me how much detail we know about our favorite teams in terms of what's going on at training camp right now. Right? We're, we're talking about practice. There's an Allen Iverson reference for those of you that care and remember that. But we'll talk about teams practicing and what they did in practice. The games haven't even been played yet, and we are enamored with what's going on in the field, and we're ready to talk about all the great things that our teams are going to do. I can already tell you right now that Trey Lance is going to be the best quarterback in the NFL. Probably not, but there's hoping. Uh, he'll, in his sophomore year with San Francisco, uh, he is replacing Jimmy Garoppolo. It's been like 100. 
190 days since he finished the last season. They still haven't traded the guy. I don't know why. Maybe the Cowboys will take him. <laughs> I already know that linebacker Fred Warner and wide receiver Brandon Ayuk have, have already clashed on the field, not just in terms of banging pads against each other, but maybe throwing fists a little bit. Like tempers are already getting hot. Guys are already getting stoked for the season, excited and ready to go. I know that the 49ers are trying to shore up their receiving core by signing Willie Sneed, a wide receiver from the Baltimore Ravens, and, uh, and lots of other things that are going on there with head coach Kyle Shanahan and GM John Lynch, maybe the best GM and head coach pairing uh, since, I don't know, forever. You guys probably have things that are praiseworthy that you would talk about that are going on with your favorite teams too, whether they be the Broncos or the Cowboys or the Raiders or the Pittsburgh Steelers, because there's always one of those in every room that you're in. The crazy thing is we will talk gladly, easily, freely, joyously in praiseworthy fashion about all the stuff that is going on with our football teams as football season is, is, is arriving and, and on the horizon. We'll talk about all the great things that are happening and why every decision that our team makes is the best decision and why this year is going to be better than last year and why last year wasn't as good as it could have been, but this, this year, this is going to be the year. And we'll talk so freely about it and joyfully about it. And then we'll come to church and we'll go to a Bible study class and someone will ask the question, what's God been doing in your life this week? And the room goes silent. Isn't that weird? Isn't it weird that we can talk so easily? I'm guilty of it too. That I can talk so easily and so freely about all the wonderful things that happened at training camp in Santa Clara, California this week, the San Francisco 49ers. But I have to dig a little. I got to work a little bit to tell you about all the great things that God has been doing in my life this week. Why is that? I think it's because we, we give maybe less attention to what God is doing in us and around us. And we praise the things that we care about. We praise the things we, we, we sing with gladness. We talk about with gladness the good things that are going on uh, that we really, really care about and really have our attention set on. These last five Psalms, Psalm 146 through 150, do not sing the praises of people or quarterbacks or running backs or head coaches or GMs. These five Psalms sing the praise of God because of what he's done. We just sang about it this morning, what he's done, what he's done, reminding ourselves of who God is and what he has done. And the right response when we remind ourselves of what God has done, of who God is, how he's working in and amongst us, the only right response that can come out of us is praise. And the Psalms, all 150 of them, or at least the 145 that lead up to these last five, are regularly reminding, calling those who are reading the Psalms to think about who God is and what he's done in the history of his people, Israel, of his character and how he demonstrates that among his people, reflecting on his presence even in the most difficult of times. And after all of that singing and all of that writing and all that calling to worship and even lament and thanksgiving and all sorts of other emotions that come up through the Psalms, the very end of Psalms, the last five are all songs of praise. So as to say, after thinking about and already praising God for all of these things, the only right response is more praise. And that's how the Psalter ends. Five songs of praise, five corporate calls to praise the Lord. Today, as we come to Psalm 146, the main idea of this psalm is this. Praise the Lord, the King who never fails. 
Praise the Lord, the King who never fails. We see in this psalm that God's people praise Him because His holy character and His righteous power never end, the psalmist reminds us. This morning, friends, we need to worship and praise God from seeing His goodness and salvation in specific ways, from seeing that He is the King who never fails to save those that He is seeking to save, to, uh, uh, to see that His goodness toward those that He rules over never ends. As we come into uh, contact, as we come into remembrance of who God is and what He has done, our response as followers of Jesus, as lovers of God, ought to be to praise the Lord. Will you stand with me as you're comfortably able as we hear Psalm 146? Follow along in your Bibles. You can uh, look on the screens behind me if uh, you don't have a copy of God's Word in your hand already. The psalmist writes, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. Praise the Lord the Lord, the King who never fails. As we come to this first of the last five psalms, a sort of closing doxology of songs in the Psalter, uh, we first see in the first two verses that praise is the refrain of God's people. You know what a refrain is. A refrain is a line in a song that appears over and again, that is sung a number of different times throughout the song. It's kind of a, a theme that, that, uh, uh, that, that runs through the whole song, that whoever's singing it, whether it's an, uh, a song sung by a you know, pop artist or a song that's sung by the church, the refrain is a, is a line that's repeated over and again to remind us about what it is that we're singing about. Praise is the refrain of God's people. It's what God's people always come back to, praising Him. It's their refrain collectively. This psalm starts and ends with the same phrase. In your Bibles, in your English Bibles, it's probably written there as praise the Lord. They're the very first line and the very last line. And uh, sneak preview, spoiler alert, every single one of the last five psalms of psalms starts and ends the exact same way. You can flip through and look at it right now. Praise the Lord is the first line. Praise the Lord is the last line. That, that phrase is translated from one Hebrew word that you already know, and it's kind of the subtitle, if you will, of this whole series, hallelujah. Did you know you already know Hebrew? Well, at least one word, hallelujah. Hallelujah is this first and last word of every one of these psalms. And hallelujah in Hebrew is a compound phrase. uh, Hallelujah, which means all of you praise, 
and Yah, which is a, uh, a shortened form of God's personal name that he gave to Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. His name, Yahweh, I am that which I am. Hallelujah means all y'all praise the Lord. Consider further. That not only is this the collective call, all y'all give praise to God, worship his name, but that the Psalms altogether, 150 of them, are curated, spiritually inspired, Holy Spirit inspired, a hymnal for God's covenant people. Uh, if, if you ever uh, thought that you didn't own a hymnal, but you own a Bible, well, you own a hymnal. There's 150 songs in there. I don't know all the tunes to all of them, but you've got them in there. This is a collected book of of songs and poems of praise and worship for God's people to sing to God, to pray to God, to read aloud and make the song of their heart. These are more than just songs that believers have written, but these are songs in Psalms that God himself through his Holy Spirit has given believers to sing together. Hallelujah. All y'all praise the Lord. This is a collective call to God's people. Praise is the refrain of God's people collectively, but it's also the refrain of God's people individually. Look again at verses uh, 1 and 2. The psalmist goes from, All y'all, praise the Lord, to, I w- Praise the Lord, O my soul. So he goes from collective to individual. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. The shift from, third or or, or sort of second person, maybe third person collective command, all y'all praise the Lord, to a first person, uh, what is the word, internalization of praising God. I will praise Him. All of us need to, but I will praise Him. I'm taking charge of my own worship of God. I'm going to give Him praise my whole life as long as I live. In seeing this, the psalmist demonstrates for us that collective praise, when the, when the people of God praise uh, uh, the Lord together, it gives cause for personal praise that lasts for a lifetime. Corporate praise flowing into individual praise. The psalmist says, I will sing praises to my God as long as I live, as long as I have my being. This is to say, there is nothing that will stop me from praising the Lord, from praising God, the psalmist says. Nothing, not a thing. Until I breathe my last, I will praise the Lord. It's interesting to say, knowing all the things that have gone on in Psalms, there are a number of of songs, a number of psalms uh, within the Psalter that are called laments. And these are psalms that have kind of a downcast tone. They're kind of sad. Psalm 88 is maybe the best example of one. And it ends on a a terribly low note. But even in these times of difficulty, even in these times of hardship, the psalmists who are writing these songs are able to bring themselves to bring that difficulty to the Lord. And usually in most of the laments to end praising the Lord or at least expressing newfound or or, or renewed hope in the Lord despite difficult circumstances. There is nothing that will stop me from praising God. Kind of like Job in Job 1, 20 and 21. We know Job, servant of God, a godly man. Is tested by the Lord, and uh, Satan is allowed to come and take everything from Job. His wealth, his health, his children. And there Job, in Job 1, verses 20 and 21, says, Naked I came into the world, naked I'll leave it. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Even so, blessed be the name of the Lord. 
Amid all the things that have been taken from me, I will still bless the Lord. So the psalmist also says, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. All in response to this collective praise. All y'all praise the Lord. So I want to point this out to us this morning and call your attention to this church. Corporate worship inspires personal worship, which inspires corporate worship, which inspires personal worship, which inspires... You see where we're going, right? It's this, it's this ongoing loop that when the people of God worship together, individual followers of God worship themselves, and then they add their praise back to the praises of the people, which inspires more individual praises. We have this wonderful sort of feedback loop of praise to God. There are some kinds of feedback that are not helpful, <laughs> Microphone feedback, which you, when it happens on a Sunday morning, everybody, God bless them, looks back at the AV booth and it's never their fault. Uh, usually what happens is somebody like me who has a microphone in his hand will get out in front of the speakers. Uh, and, and so I'll be talking through the microphone and the signal from my voice is going through the speakers. And if I'm out in front of the speakers, that same signal will come back in through the microphone and it starts doubling over in the, in the system. And that's when you get that loud screeching, explosive kind of, uh, just, uh, uh blood curdling, uh, causing your ears to bleed sort of sound. Microphone feedback is a, a cycling of one signal that just overtakes a whole sound system. Our, our worship, friends, in a far better way, should be just like that. Our, our worship should be like a spirit-inspired, God-glorifying system of feedback, feedback loop, but gloriously so, as we simultaneously listen to the praises of the church and then add our own voices to it and on and on, knowing that this is what we're meant for and made to do. All y'all praise the Lord, and we all start praising the Lord, and hearing the voices of the saints around us praising the Lord for what He has done causes us individually to think about what the Lord has done in my life, and now now the words that we're singing mean, mean a whole lot more. Now I'm singing them not just because they're the words on the screen, but because they're the words that I know. And as my brother and my sister standing next to me hears me singing with joy for what the Lord has done, it causes them to think about what the Lord has done. And then they start singing the words, not just because they're the words on the screen, but because they're the words that mean something to them because God has done something great in their life. Do you see how this goes and how this is meant to go on? Our worship altogether as believers especially every Sunday morning when we sing these songs of praise, is not, we're not just performing for each other. And we're not just performing for God. We're engaging in this wonderful, beautiful thing that God has made us to do, to give praise to His name, to recognize His glory and His majesty, and to delight in it, to be glad in it, and to sing songs of praise to His name with others who, who can also sing those songs of praise. And again, not just because they're the words on the screen, but because those words reflect a testimony, a story of, of what God has been doing, of His faithfulness, of His mercy, of His grace, of His compassion, of His patience in our lives. And we are glad to add our voices to that. Praise is the refrain of God's people. And when God's people worship corporately, really worship all together, it inspires personal worship. And the personal worship of the individual overflowing with authenticity and genuineness and, and real love of God 
inspires others to see the goodness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the patience of God, whatever it is that God is demonstrating in your life, to see it afresh and anew and to add their praises to yours. Oh, that every Sunday morning would be this wonderful, spirit-filled feedback loop of worship when we sing together. Praise is the refrain of God's people, the psalmist shows us. And then the psalmist shifts a little bit to tell us why we ought to praise the Lord, why all y'all ought to give worship to him. He calls us to praise the king who never fails. Verses 3 and 4 of this psalm give a warning and create a a foil, that is a figure of comparison. Verse 3, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there's no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that day his plans perish. Princes, these that the psalmist says don't put your trust in, don't put your hope in, are not just royal figures, but in general persons of influence. Not just rulers, but especially human rulers. Do not praise them. Don't put your trust in them, the psalmist says. Why? Because they are mere mortals. They are sons of men. They are uh, human, just like you. Don't praise them, because they're not any more immoral immoral or, or lasting than you are. And also don't praise them, because they cannot provide salvation. There's no salvation in such a son of man and such a prince. And when they die, when their mortality catches up to them, all of their plans go with them. Everything they intend to do, all that influential people would like to do in life, dies with them. So don't trust them, the psalmist says. Instead, instead of these failing, flailing, frail creatures, instead, hope in the Lord. Don't hope in them. Hope in Yahweh. Hope in the God who is. Verse 5, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. The psalmist shows us that there is blessing, that there's gladness, there's real joy for the one whose help is the God of Jacob and whose hope is in Yahweh. Anytime you see that word Lord, L-O-R-D, in all caps in your Old Testaments, that is the personal name of God uh, as it is translated in English. That is the name Yahweh. Uh, so every time you see that word Lord in all caps, that is God's personal name as revealed to Moses in Exodus 3, as we said earlier. The psalmist does not call the people of Israel, God's people, to praise nondescript gods, but to praise the one true God above all others. He doesn't say don't trust in princes, just trust in the gods or trust in uh, divine beings. Put your hope in them who have more power than, than, than mortal humans. No, 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 no. He says trust in the only God that there is. Blessed is the one whose hope is in that God. And then after that, he gives us a list of praiseworthy attributes about God that no prince, that no influential person in all of the world could ever live up to. I count at least 12 attributes that the psalmist points out about God. We'll just take them very briefly and in order. Catch all of these. Why should we praise the God? Why should we praise God? The God. God, because he's a creator. Verse 6. He's the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. Reminding us of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. More than being a creator, he's the one who keeps faith forever. Or if we were to translate that phrase from Hebrew to English literally, something like maintains truth forever. 
praise God because he's always true and he's always trustworthy. There's nothing false in him. There's nothing deceptive in him. This God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, will never lead you astray. Blessed is the one who puts their hope in him because they'll never be let down. Moreover, he executes justice. This is the Hebrew word mishpat. That's a fun word to say. It means legal judgment, even legal action uh, in, in intervening in a particular sort of case, either, either on, uh, uh, for the benefit of a defrauded party or to the punishment of a defrauding party. God is the one who executes justice. He does what is right for the unjustly oppressed and for the downtrodden. Blessed is the one who puts their hope in that God because he sees those who are troubled, those who are oppressed in the same way that he saw his people, the Hebrews, when they were living as slaves in Egypt. Exodus chapter 3 verse 9 says, Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, God says, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. God executed justice against Pharaoh for his people, the Hebrews, as he punished Pharaoh, bringing plagues upon Egypt and delivered his people out of Israel and or out of uh, slavery in Egypt. And that event is inspiring praise from the psalmist in 146. More still, this God, the God of Jacob, the one that gives blessing to those who hope in him, he gives food to the hungry. Again, I think that The psalmist is evoking imagery from Israel's past. Like when God gave manna in the wilderness to the Hebrews as they were brought out of slavery in Exodus 16. Or like the time that God provided oil and flour for the widow who uh, was able to then feed Elijah the prophet and her son in 1 Kings 17. Like the miraculous feeding of 5,000 people that Jesus did in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. God gives food to the hungry. He is worthy to be praised. More still, he sets prisoners free. The Lord sets the prisoners free, the last part of verse 7. Now, these are not all prisoners. This is not, God just doesn't open. God is not against incarceration. He is for justice. But those who are unjustly imprisoned, those who have been imprisoned uh, uh, on account of crimes they did not commit, those are the ones that God sets, fr- sets free. Again, think Exodus imagery. The people, the Hebrews, were enslaved, imprisoned as slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And God released them. He opened the prison doors and led them to freedom. After God allowed his people to be taken into captivity, into exile in Babylon because of their disobedience to him, after a period of time, he opened those prison doors as well and allowed them to return back home. God sets the prisoners free and he's worthy to be praised. The psalmist goes on to say, blessed is the Lord, he's worthy to be praised because he opens the eyes of the blind. Now there aren't a whole lot of instances of healing of the blind in the Old Testament. But this was a specifically promised effect of the Messiah's coming. The Messiah is God's chosen deliverer, his anointed savior of his people. Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61 both speak about with hope uh, a coming Messiah who will bring sight to the blind. And opening the eyes of the blind was one of the major hallmarks of Jesus' ministry, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, uh, God's anointed one, God in human flesh who comes to bring salvation to all people, open the eyes of the blind. And because of that, God is worthy to be praised. Number seven, God lifts the humble 
and the bowed down, the psalmist says. These are those who have humbled themselves before, before the Lord, who have recognized that God is God and I'm not Him. He's holy, He's righteous, I'm not. And anytime I'm in His presence, it's a good idea for me to humble myself, to see myself rightly. To those who humble themselves before the Lord, the Lord also lifts them, He exalts them. He says, don't be afraid to look at me. Think about how all the times that God uh, appears in Scripture to somebody and that individual falls down terrified in the, in the face of a holy God. And what is so often God's first word to them or the word of an angel sent by the Lord to someone? Don't be afraid. The Lord lifts those who humble themselves before Him, but He also lifts those who have been humiliated by others, who use their power abusively. Again, we don't have to go far, and, and, and the Exodus serves as, as kind of a, a paradigm for how God works with His people throughout all of Scripture and through the whole of the Old Covenant. The people of Israel, before they were the nation of Israel, but the, the Hebrews were humiliated by the Egyptians, humiliated by Pharaoh, pressed down, oppressed, persecuted, and God lifts them to a place of uh, honor and to a land of their own. Number eight, God loves the righteous. Yahweh loves those who are righteous because he is himself righteousness personified. The Hebrew word for righteous, we're learning a lot of Hebrew today. Hallelujah, mishpat. The Hebrew word for righteousness is the word tzaddik. That's another fun word to say. And it's a mark of the actions of those who are steadfastly committed to the Lord and to right worship and right living because of his ultimate righteousness. Those who know that the Lord is holy and those who love the Lord's holiness, those who know that God only does what is right all the time and those who love doing what is right because God loves doing what is right, these are the ones that God looks on with love. He loves the righteous. The Lord loves those who love doing what he loves. Number nine, he watches over the sojourner. Sojourners are, uh, is a word that uh, are similar to non-citizen residents, people who are living in a nation that, that they don't necessarily have citizenship in. And this reminds us, again, of Exodus. We keep going back here, but you read the Psalms very much, and you're going to see a ton of Exodus imagery. But Exodus 22, 21, when God is giving some of the law, the first part of the law to his people after bringing them out of slavery, he says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. In the same way that God watched over his people when they were living in a land that they didn't belong to, so also still today he looks over those that are living in a land that perhaps they don't belong to or perhaps they're not citizens of. God upholds the widow and the orphan, the psalmist says. He's worthy of praise because of this. God cares for, he sets his compassion on, he he looks upon those who are in the most dangerous of positions, widows and orphans. Those who have little to no source of provision in their life. In the ancient world, one of the most dangerous positions to be in was to be a widow, to be a woman whose husband had died, or to be an orphan, to be a child whose parents had died. Why? Because if you're a widow, you, you don't have a source of provision or income or care. That's what your husband did. You have to live off of the generosity of those that are in the community. The same with an orphan. It is to have no parents. I... It's not something that, praise God, I've ever had to experience, but this may be the, the, the uh, story of, of some of you in your past, that your parents had died when you were perhaps quite young and you were left at a young age to care for yourself. It is good to know that God cares for those like that. 
God cares for these because He's gracious and compassionate. He cares for the vulnerable. He sees their hardship and He desires to be gracious to them. Number 11, God thwarts the intentions of the wicked. The end of verse 9, the way of the wicked He brings to ruin. If we were to, again, translate this literally from Hebrew, the phrase of verse 9 reads something like, the way of the wicked He twists. It is to say that the righteous Lord, Yahweh, who is good and always does what is good, who does all things well, sees the intent of evil persons. He discerns their plans, and then he works in his sovereign power to tie their paths into all sorts of knots that cannot be undone so that their wickedness may not come to fruition. That's who this God is, and that's why he's worthy of praise. Finally, number 12, the psalmist says, the Lord reigns forever and ever. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. All these many attributes of God culminating here in this 12th. Cause the Lord to stand apart and cause the Lord to be recognized as far above all human leaders. Remember, the psalmist started by saying, Put not your trust in princes. Instead, hope in the Lord. Do not trust in human leaders who die today and their plans go with them. Trust in the Lord, the King of all things, the Creator of everything, the one who looks upon the oppressed and executes justice for all of those who are being treated wrongly. Look on the Lord who gives food to the hungry and cares for the widow and the orphan. Look on the Lord who does not fail to reign. Trust in Him, hope in Him, who is not like human princes. He is God who reigns forever. Princes, influential people, do not deserve our hope or our trust like the Lord does. Because the Lord does things and the Lord acts in ways and with such righteous consistency that no prince, no leader, no governor, no president, no king could ever hold a candle to His name. Every human prince, even the best among Israel, eventually failed in one or several different ways. Many of the kings of Israel, particularly those kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, after Solomon died and the kingdom was split in two, many of those kings led the people astray and into unrighteousness and idolatry, worship of pagan gods from among the peoples that lived in the land of Canaan before they arrived there leading the people into unrighteousness. And they were themselves, in many ways, these human kings, the impetus. They were the driving force of bringing God's judgment upon his own disobedient people. Human princes fail, the psalmist says. Often, miserably. We're reminded that their failures often result in our failure as well when we follow their influence. The better path, the psalmist says, The better path is a path of trusting in a better Savior, who is no man, but who is the Lord himself. Put not your trust in princes. Put your trust in the Lord, who will reign forever in righteousness. What we have in Psalm 146 is a meditation. It's a meditation by the psalmist on all the things that God has done. And very quick, almost sort of machine gun Uh, uh, with machine gun rapidity, meditation on all the things that God has done in faithful ways among his people and all the things that he is to be praised for. And the result of this meditation on God's goodness is worship. And friends, that's what I want to encourage us 
by this morning. That meditation on God's everlasting goodness inspires worship. That's what the psalmist is doing. He's thinking about, he's rolling over in his head all of the things that are true and good about God, all of the ways that God has been faithful over and above human leaders, all of the reasons that God is to be praised, and the result of that meditation on God's righteousness and perfectness and, and, and majesty is this wonderful psalm of praise. Meditation on God's goodness inspires worship. So I invite you, Christian, to meditate on God's goodness and see if it inspires you to worship. Make a list. Make a list for yourself of the ways that God has demonstrated his goodness, that God has shown his grace, that God has been compassionate to you. Like even as I'm talking, take your pen, you have paper, make a list right now. Maybe make a list in the margin of your Bible if you have space to do it. Start writing down or maybe even next to every one of these lines in Psalm 146, a personal application, a way that God has demonstrated his creative power in your life, the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. Think about and be grateful for, write something in the margin of something that you're glad that God has done or created that inspires you to praise. Maybe next to the one who executes justice for the oppressed. Perhaps there is a, a way in which you are being treated wrongly at work or at school. Maybe being bullied or, or abused by someone in a relationship. Remind yourself that God does not allow such injustices to go unseen. And that he will deal with them perfectly in his own time. Make a list for yourself. A real list with real pen and real paper of things that God has done and demonstrated, how he's demonstrated his character, the character that the psalmist reveals to us in Psalm 146, that he's displayed that in your life. And then think about it. Don't just write it down and put that list away, but write it down and you know, stick it on the bathroom mirror so you can look at it tomorrow morning. Maybe tuck it away uh, here in, in, in the Psalms so that as we're working through the Psalms over the next several weeks, you'll return to that list regularly. Think about it over and over again. Meditate on it. Again, biblical meditation is not emptying your mind of every thought, but it is focusing your mind on the things of God. So make a list of God's faithfulness, how he's demonstrated his goodness in your life, and meditate on it. And see, see if it doesn't lead you to praise him. See if it doesn't lead your heart to delight in God who is good and just and compassionate and merciful and always there. I dare you not to find yourself praising the Lord for all of these things. You might not break out into song as you're shaving in the bathroom as you're reading that list tomorrow morning, but maybe you will. I don't know. But see if your heart does not lift in some way as you reflect on God's faithfulness. And if it helps, friends, make two lists. Make one list of all the ways that influential and powerful people have let you down, that princes of this world have failed and failed you. And then have that other list of all the ways that God has been faithful where others have failed and put those two lists side by side and meditate on the comparison. Meditate on the foil between uh, failing human leaders and the faithful God who lives forever. But whatever you do, meditate, think on God's goodness so that it might inspire your worship, so that you might find yourself tomorrow morning as you're shaving in the mirror saying with the psalmist, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being because he is not like these princes who fail. He is always faithful. He's always good. Look at all the things that he's done. We praise the king, God who never fails. This principle, this 
idea of, main idea of the psalm takes us a step further, takes me a step further. And I think we fail to understand the psalm best if we don't take this next step, which is to go from the songs of God's old covenant people, praising God, being a king who never fails. If we don't press forward to see God's perfect revelation of himself in Jesus and to worship him, we, we fall short of the call of the psalm. And so I want to encourage us this morning to praise Jesus, to praise Jesus, our king who never fails. In Luke chapter 24, after Jesus had raised from the dead in his glorified body, he meets with two of his disciples, unnamed disciples, on the road to Emmaus. And he walks with them a good distance before they recognize who he is. And toward the end of, uh, at the end of the walk, they, um, uh, they arrive uh, at a home and they break bread together. And it's in the breaking of bread that they realize, oh, this is Jesus risen from the dead. Oh, my goodness. And there in that time spent with those disciples, we read in Luke 24, 27, that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus, as he's risen from the dead, having paid for the sins of the world and been victorious over sin and death by his resurrection, then takes time with his disciples to say, everything in the scriptures is about me, including Psalm 146. Psalm 146 is a psalm, a song, ultimately about the Lord who takes on flesh in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, our Savior. Jesus is regularly noted as one who has divine power over all creation, just like the Lord is in Psalm 146.6. Jesus has power over the wind and the waves and uh, there at the Sea of Galilee when the disciples and Jesus are there in a storm-tossed boat. Jesus is even explicitly called the Creator Himself, making Him one with God in John chapter 1, verse 3, and Colossians 1.16. Both John the Gospel writer and Paul referring to Jesus as the Creator because He is God. In this way, Jesus personifies and incarnates, that is, he puts into flesh the very person of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Put plainly, Jesus is the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, in flesh among us in his incarnation. Not only does he do all that the Father does, but he is himself God in human form, like Paul tells us in Philippians 2. All of the messianic expectation, all the hope for a Savior that would come from Israel for the world throughout the Old Testament is realized and it is fulfilled completely in Jesus, who is himself the righteous King of God's people. Jesus was recognized as this king at his entry into Jerusalem at the beginning of the last week of his life, but just a few days later he was rejected by the ruling elite and ultimately crucified. While this passage points us to the substance of the person of Christ, so much of his character is just obvious in this psalm. God with us in human flesh. This psalm also holds a subtle irony. The psalmist says that we should not put our trust in princes. Not put our trust in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. That descriptor, son of man, is the Hebrew phrase ben adam, son of man. And it's commonly used in reference to the prophet Ezekiel. In fact, countless times in, uh, in Ezekiel. And it's also, though, son of man, the title that Jesus most prefers to use in reference to himself throughout his whole ministry. I dare you to read the Gospels sometime this week and not find Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man countless times. Now, it is doubtful that the psalmist, as he's writing this, 
had in mind the irony that there would come a son of man who would bring salvation by his sacrificial dying, but the image is not lost on the one who has known Christ. Jesus, the divine son of man, likewise died, and he was buried, as are all human princes, but his plans did not perish with him. He is a son of man in whom there is salvation. Because he's not just a son of man, he's not just Ben Adam, but he's the incarnate son of God who was raised to life in triumph over sin and death so that the plans of God from before the foundation of the world to save those who look on the son in faith would be completed. So I read Psalm 146.3, put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom is there, there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. And I say, amen, absolutely. But at the same time, I read Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4, and I say, but there is a Son of Man in whom there is salvation. But he ain't ain't just any old dude. There is a Son of Man who is also the Son of God, God in human flesh, who did die for sins to bring salvation. And when he died, his breath departed for a moment. He returned to the earth. He was buried, but his plans did not perish. His plans were completed. God's plans were completed in his death and made perfect in his resurrection so that all who look on the capital S son of capital M man as a title, Jesus the Messiah, would be saved through him. So friends, are the words of Psalm 146 your words? Is this song of praise your song of praise? Where your soul praise the Lord because of his goodness to you in Jesus? Will you praise him as long as you live? Will his praise be the theme of your life, the refrain of your life? If you've come to know God as the psalmist has come to know him, and as the psalmist leads us to know God and to reflect on him, if you have followed the scriptures to the foot of the cross where God demonstrates his compassionate and saving love for sinners, then, dear friend, worship, praise, songs of joy, Words of profound adoration of God will be your theme your whole life through. The truth is this. You cannot know this God. You cannot truly know him experientially in relationship with him through Jesus, his son. You can't know him and not praise him. Praise the Lord. All y'all, praise the Lord. And you know what? Me too. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. That's going to be the theme of my life. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being and nothing, no nothing will stop me. Let's pray.